Welcome to episode 62, Deconstructing Addiction, Is It Really a Brain Disease? Featuring Dr. Mel Pohl, Board Certified Addiction Specialist. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today, we will be spending some time with Dr. Mel Pohl. Dr. Mel Pohl is an MD, and he is a Distinguished Fellow of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. He is certified by the American Board of Addiction Medicine, and he is a Clinical Assistant Professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Nevada School of Medicine. Mel, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, Beth. Uh, I'm happy to be here. So tell us a little bit more about your background. Uh, sure. Um, I uh, am a family doctor, and I moved to Las Vegas in 1979 after my residency and took a job working in uh, rehab, an addiction rehab, and kind of fell in love with the field uh, back, uh, through the back door. I, I actually, uh, the doctor I went to work for was uh, in charge of the facility, and he said, oh, by the way, I've got this work for you here. And every other weekend, you're going to be on call. So uh, as a result of that, I uh, spent quite a bit of time in detox and uh, what was to become a pretty decent rehab uh, treatment center. And uh, I, I, you could say I fell in love with the, with the field. I mean, it's, it's, as you know, so fascinating that, uh, I mean, such a, a unique opportunity to treat people in a very vulnerable time uh, and to be really impactful. Um, so uh, over the years, I've been involved with a number of facilities, and for the past 16, I've been at the Las Vegas Recovery Center. Uh, we treat addiction uh, and also chronic pain and uh, co-occurring mental uh, disorders uh, in the Las Vegas area. We have a full spectrum of, of treatment modalities, uh, and uh, that's the, you know, this is my home, and uh Again, the, the place I really do the, the most uh, exciting work. Uh, and for the past two years, I moved from medical director to chief medical officer so I could uh, do more administrative work and uh, travel and teach more. Well, thank you for joining us. I'm sure our listeners are excited to hear from you. You have such a strong affiliation with ASAM, and obviously ASAM is so well known in the United States. Thank you for your time. Sure. So today we're going to be talking about deconstructing addiction. Is it really a brain disease? Um, why don't we start just by you talking a little bit about what this topic means to you? Sure. Well, I, you know, I, I've given a, a version of this talk since the beginning of my career, uh, and, and I think it's really essential uh, for clients, patients, uh, their families, uh, and clinicians to really understand the nature of, of the brain disease of addiction. Uh, I think it's really important because uh, we, we have so much stigma associated with addiction. And uh, when a real clear message about the brain dysfunction and, and the, you know, the, the causes and the progression of this process that occurs in the brain, when that is, is offered, I think it's a, it's a real move towards destigmatizing this very complex illness. Uh, and I think that you have to understand the brain disease in order, it, it, in some capacity, 
in order to recover as, as a person uh, with the disease, but also for a family member who cares about such a, a, a person. And, you know, for every person with addiction, there's at least five people who are affected seriously in their family uh, by addiction. And, and finally, for the clinician uh, who we're talking to today, uh, to really, uh, especially if you're a mental health clinician, uh, to really grasp the significance of the fact that the will is not what's at stake when it comes to uh, addictive behaviors. Uh, and I think in order to be effective with somebody who has substance use disorder, which is what the DSM is now calling it, uh, which I'm going to call through the course of our conversation, I'm going to call it addiction. Uh, but that phenomenon has to be well understood and it has to be treated. I mean, if somebody has mental, mental illness, bipolar, depression, uh, schizophrenia, uh, or anxiety, and they have an addiction disease, they must uh, be offered treatment for the addiction at least concurrently and, you know, maybe first, because if there are chemicals in the brain of somebody who has addiction, uh, it's almost impossible to recover. Thank you. I know this particular topic is pretty hotly contested in certain communities coming from either the perspective of diehard 12-step or the biopsychosocial spiritual model and kind of flexibility of disease uh, the disease model of addiction. What have been your experiences related to kind of that that idea? Of like, basically, is this a disease? Can we officially call this a disease? And you come from a very obviously from a very experienced perspective as an MD. Yeah, I, you know, I don't find uh, the disease. You know, it, it's referred to as the disease concept or the disease model, uh, but that's just because it's. I think we were sort of somewhat apologizing for you know, it's kind of a disease. Well, a disease, if you look in the definition in in a medical dictionary, it's a process that alters the body's structure or function, diagnosable by signs and symptoms. So, and if you compare addiction to diabetes or cancer or heart disease, uh, they're very parallel in their course in that they have some etiology, usually it's multifactorial, uh, you know, in the case of diabetes, there's a genetic uh, propensity, but there's also weight and diet and uh, physical conditioning uh, and other factors that are yet to be defined. Uh, and, and that's really the, the state of the understanding of addiction. You know, addiction is a brain disease. Brain uh, dysfunction causes symptoms that are behavioral. So when we try and define the disease, we talk about the lying and the cheating and the stealing and uh, interpersonal relationship problems and uh, uh, work and and uh, other functional uh, disorders that that go along with, but really we're talking about the manifestations of what's happening in the brain. You know, our brain is a, of course in charge of all all, all of our functions, uh, both our mind and our you know the the part of the nervous system that isn't necessarily conscious, but that's pretty much running the show. And I don't find any conflict with understanding that addiction is a disease and defining it in the sense of a biopsychosocial spiritual condition. Because if you think about it, there is no disease known to humans that is not biopsychosocial and spiritual. 
Uh, I mean, again, look at diabetes. If if you define the disease of diabetes, I mean, it's pancreas-related uh, dysfunction and insulin that doesn't work right and a whole lot of other complex interactions with the hormone system. But there's a psychological component to diabetes with frustration and fear and anger. There's uh, social issues around uh, use of medications and compliance with uh, treatment recommendations uh, and uh, uh, the course of one's life as a result of the diabetes with complications, you know, it could be uh, visual complications and kidney complications. And there's a spiritual component to diabetes. I mean, people are, are uh, soul sick, if you will, uh, with their separation from well-being. And I think we could say that about every single medical disease. I think addiction in its definition, uh, and the definition that I like the best is provided by the American Society of Addiction Medicine, but it really talks about the, the biopsychosocial and spiritual manifestations of this brain disease. And, but, but again, that doesn't make it less of a disease. Uh, the fact that there's a spiritual component to a disease is something that the medical profession is in denial with, I think, <laughs> with respect to other medical diseases. I think we're ahead of the game when we understand the spiritual component. Uh, and as, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, it's in the 12-step programs, I think they embrace the fact that addiction is a disease. Uh, it's, it's referred to in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous as a, an allergy, which isn't physiologically correct, but it's, a good, it's good enough to understand that if I eat strawberries, I break out in a rash. If I eat, uh, drink alcohol, or I use opiates, or I take marijuana, it causes a chemical reaction in my body, an electrochemical reaction, if you will, and I end up having these behaviors, which are symptoms of the disease. I can certainly appreciate the perspective of how the spiritual and social pieces fit into the disease model of addiction. And having sat with families before, I think where I see a lot of, of pushback or confusion about the quote unquote disease model of addiction is this idea that by calling it a disease, some folks have interpreted that to mean that individuals are no longer responsible for their actions. Yeah. And I think you you mentioned that piece of lying, stealing, cheating, these behaviors that happen in social relationships that are so difficult for loved ones, employers, um, family members even neighbors, things like that to understand in society. And yet there's, it's still rooted in this brain dysfunction effectively. Yeah. I mean, I certainly, I, I run uh, the medical part of family program here at Las Vegas recovery center for the last uh, 15 years. And so once a month I sit with families and you know, it's really quite interesting. Some of them come with some understanding and some of them come with confusion and some of them come just downright pissed off, you know, how dare you let them off the hook? Uh, and of course, during the course of the four-day family program, we work with their anger and their uh, resentments because those are the things that are making the family members sick. But that said, uh, it's it, 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 in my experience, the, uh, the resistance to uh, absolving somebody of responsibility is an unrealistic one. We don't really feel, I don't, I don't feel as a, as a physician that if I, uh, let's go back to diabetes. If somebody uh, 
is eating excessively and, you know, their blood sugar is out of control and they get sick and they throw up on your shoes. I mean, those behaviors are, are important, but, you know, understanding that they're doing all that because they have a compulsion to eat as part of, you know, perhaps even an addictive disorder, of course, with, uh, with, with compulsive eating and in the face of diabetes. But, you know, it's a, it's a very similar process. And the, the responsibility remains in the province of the patient or the, the identified person with addiction. Uh, but the understanding of why they behave the way they behave is key to being able to even move past the anger phase. And, and you know, I mean, I hold patients and we recommend that families hold patients responsible for their actions and their the consequences of their actions. For example, if you stole, I mean, even in Alcoholics Anonymous, they say the eighth step is making amends. You know, you pay that money back. Uh, the other side of the coin is, of course, forgiveness sets you free from from the, the awful burden of being angry and being resentful at what the person did. But understanding that all of those behaviors were a manifestation of the fact that a, addictive substances became more important than morality and promises and uh, appropriate behavior. And that's the that's the essence of understanding the disease. I appreciate that explanation. And as you're talking about it, I'm thinking even about animal studies mm-hmm. relating to addictive disorders. Can you speak a little bit about what some of the animal studies have found in terms of behavior change and um, alterations in in social relationships, even within animals? Sure. Uh, well, you know, the the it's nice to look at animals because. We, we can't attribute, attribute human beha- behavior and uh, emotions to animals. You know, they, they're not motivated by greed and jealousy and uh, right and wrong. You know, animals are creatures that drive towards things that are rewarding uh, without any kind of uh, discernment. Humans have that ability to discern, which comes from our frontal cortex, the, the, the area, the, the sophisticated new brain uh, that really guides a lot of our actions. But addictive behaviors, which are present both in humans and in animals, come from a much more grounded reptilian sort of a function, which is, you know, feed me. I need food to get my blood glucose up or my brain will be deprived of glucose. Uh, sex to reproduce, you know, my my need is to uh, create more progeny from my genetic pool. That's that's my purpose in life. And when it's all done, I, I sleep. Uh, and all of those functions are part of that very intrinsic uh, primal uh, function of the brain present in animals. And, and we can uh, induce addictive behavior in animals by exposing them to particular drugs. For example, the, the traditional, the uh, most well-known study is the rat that's given an opportunity to uh, eat and uh, a male rat that has access to a female rat in heat or a jolt 
dose of cocaine into the midbrain, the, the part of the brain that we know is affected by uh, drugs of, of uh, addictive drugs. And if the rat discovers the cocaine lever, it'll press that lever at the exclusion of eating and drinking and, and sex until it's dead. So <laughs> you, you gotta make some sense out of a behavior that defies reason, logic, uh, even uh, survival instinct. You know, the, the drug becomes, it develops what we call survival salience. So it's cocaine is number one above those other functions, when in fact it's not doing what it needs to do to, to nourish me and to, uh, you know, provide sexual outlet, et cetera. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So you kind of touched upon it. Why don't you tell us about some of the signs and symptoms of addiction? So there are some of the things that we see in rats. What do we see in humans? Well, you know, we define, one of the ways to define the disease is a continued use despite consequences in life. So the symptoms of using substances are in that bio, psycho, social, and spiritual area. But so if you start with bio, I mean, there are, and, you know, I'm talking about alcohol as a prototype of substances that cause or that are involved in addiction. I, I hesitate to say cause addiction because it's the substance plus the human's brain that results in addictive disease. So, you know, it's not the drug alone, because if it was the drug alone, then everybody who drank would have alcohol uh, addiction and they don't. So it's it's the substance plus the, the substrate, if you will, which is the human uh, body, brain, background, uh, genetics, etc. But in that, but and alcohol as a prototype of other drugs, which would include opiate, painkillers, uh, uh, you know, heroin down to hydrocodone and codeine, uh, marijuana, uh, cannabinoids, particularly uh, these very potent uh, edible forms or uh, concentrated uh, smokable forms uh, called dabbing uh, or wax um, and and uh, sedative drugs like the, the Valium and uh, Xanax uh, using the brand names for diazepam and alprazolam uh, and sleeping medications, Zolpidem or Ambien um, and uh, what am I leaving out? Cocaine stimulants. So cocaine and methamphetamine uh, being the two primary uh, substances. So substances are the, the uh, vehicle that activates the disease, if you will, in a vulnerable person or vulnerable brain. And when the drug becomes primary, everything else seems to go by the wayside. So if you, if you take a drug like alcohol, it's toxic to really every cell of the body. So there is actually brain dysfunction as a result of chronic alcohol use and cognitive problems and memory problems. There is uh, problems with the liver, as we well know, with uh, fatty infiltration and eventually cirrhosis uh, in, the, in the long run. There's trouble in the gastrointestinal tract with inflammation of the lining of the stomach and ulcers, uh, which can cause bleeding. Um, there are increase in different kinds of cancer. Breast cancers increase, colon cancer increased in people who drink excessively. Uh, and, uh, you know, kidneys are affected, cardiac muscle is affected. As I said, every organ of the body is impacted by, by alcohol. Uh, if we stay with physical, uh, 
look at uh, stimulants, I mean, stimulants are causing the heart to beat fast and all the things that go along with that, which include uh, heart disease and, and uh, you know, cardiac uh, events like a heart attack or a stroke uh, can be uh, excessive or caused really by, by stimulant drugs. Uh, and then there's a lot of neglect of self-care. You know, the typical uh, methamphetamine addict has terrible teeth because they grind and they don't care for their oral hygiene, uh, et cetera. There's a propensity to infections with a variety of different drugs, particularly if they're being injected. So heroin uh, can be injected or other opiates uh, and certainly methamphetamine and cocaine. If you're putting a needle through the skin, you can be subject to local skin infection or worse still, systemic infections like hepatitis or uh, HIV or um, cardiac uh, in infections. Um, as we go down the list, uh, psychological problems that are really uh, compounded in all the drugs uh, that, that I uh, listed uh, could be uh, anxiety and depression uh, and uh, sleep disorders, um, it, with the stimulants, paranoia is pretty typical, um, and uh, really problems with thoughts. Marijuana, the newest version of marijuana that we see in, in uh, dispensaries these days, is known for causing psychosis in young people uh, and also in people uh, in their uh, late 20s, early 30s, de novo. So, you know, people who don't have any schizophrenic history or thought disorder history are developing acute psychosis and chronic psychosis. It's very recalcitrant to treatment. Um, social problems. I mean, people don't fulfill their obligations, so they are they have significant problems in managing life and managing relationships. Of course, so you know we see significant stressors in marriages and friendships, uh, in uh, work-related uh, activities. Uh, both from impairment at work, you know, you come to work stoned, you can't do your work, you drive uh, under intoxication, uh, there are consequences that are in the legal system. Um, and then there's the just sort of isolation from friends and family as a result of chronic use of substances. And then finally, spiritual manifestations, you know, and uh, I have no interest in exploring religion on this talk, but uh, spirituality really starts with anything other than me, uh, in, in my understanding. So it really, the, the isolation and the disconnection that is results from chronic use of substances uh, is, um, it, it's common and, and uh, really sort of one of the hallmarks of the disease of addiction. People are disconnected from uh, their sense of self, they're very self-centered, so they're they're looking out for what seems to be their their well-being. Uh, in actual fact, uh, is counterproductive for their well-being. All of these factors create. I don't know if I'd say create addiction, but create. I mean, it. it so tell me how you see kind of the relationship between substance and whether that caused ad addiction or what you said earlier, which was basically the substance almost turns it on, that there's this propensity for addiction and then exposure to substance creates this problem that there otherwise wouldn't have been. Yeah, it turns it on is a, is a good, you know, or activates is a good description of 
of how I understand uh, what happens in the brain. I mean, there is sort of a setup, if you will. And uh, there's been some study and quite a bit of debate about what in the environment results in people being addicted. You know, people in Vietnam uh, uh, used heroin in an addictive fashion, and yet they left the environment of uh, Vietnam when the stress went away and the incidence of heroin addiction that continued was pretty low. So that suggests that it was the environmental stressors that were the key precipitant. And then there's the classic rat park studies where they put rats in a deprived environment, give them substances and they become addicted, put rats in a rich environment called rat park where they get to play and they get to interact and they get you know that, that spiritual connection for the rats. Uh, and, and the result is a, a lower incidence of use of substances. There are some social scientists who would like to say that is addiction, that, that explains it to- totally. I don't, I don't get that, uh, Elizabeth. I, you know, I, I mean, it's like when you look at the pictures of the brain and you look at the studies that show the activation of certain parts of the brain when drugs are used, it's just confounding to me that somebody would not acknowledge that that's what's really happening in the underlying uh, process of of the disease of addiction um, but the the description that I that I rattled off you know with all those symptoms are results of use in a vulnerable person uh, so you know people who have a cocktail with dinner don't have those kinds of results people who drive under intoxication and maybe they get stopped they never drive under intoxication again if they don't have this disease. They, you know, they're able to process, learn, change behavior in response to the consequences. The, the key in somebody who has addiction is because the drug has now superseded the things that, that foretell well-being, the drug becomes the drive. And the fact that I got a DUI just tells me I should drive on the side streets instead of the highway or, uh, you know, I had a patient who truly said to me, you know, after my third DUI, I knew exactly what to do. I sold my car. So, you know, a, a, a reasoning person and even an, uh, someone with addiction who looks back at their behavior says, this doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, uh, one of the exercises I do with, with people who have addiction is I ask them to describe the disease and they'll describe one of the key phenomena, which is I, the reasons I, I use substances. So most patients use substances for one of two reasons. They use it to get high, which is to elevate their mood. But the vast majority of people, especially as the disease progresses over time, the vast majority of people are using substances to escape, to get relief from a long list of symptoms, symptoms like anxiety and depression and fear and anger and relationship problems and uh, stress at work and uh, financial complications and uh, physical problems. And I, I do the exercise on a blackboard or a grease board. And what it turns out is that the reasons for use are the same as the consequences of the disease. So here I am using substances to relieve my anxiety and it causes more anxiety. I have more anxiety, so I use more substances to attempt to relieve it. And, you know, it's this futile, 
ineffective methodology, but in the, the life of the person who has addiction, there, there's no logic because the logic is coming from a part of the brain that's not really activated when the disease is in action. Uh, the, the logic comes from the frontal lobe. The, the addictive behaviors and drives come from this much more primitive part of the brain that I talked about earlier uh, with serotonin and dopamine pathways that are really after reward uh, and relief from pain, which is was in that area as well. There's kind of a rabbit hole to go down, and I want to go down it just a little bit. So we're looking at this idea of substance addiction. And one thing that I've seen in my practice, and we don't have polysubstance dependence anymore in the DSM the way that we did, but looking at someone who has a history of polysubstance use. So what I've seen is sometimes some of those folks will have access to a certain substance, use that, and then when access isn't available anymore, then they move on to a different substance, whatever that might be. And then there's also this capacity to move into then the process or behavioral addictions. How do you make that leap in your role with your background between addiction to a substance and then what appears to be an addictive behavior relating to sex, gambling, shopping, whatever that might be? Yeah. Uh, well, we the analogy that uh, I'm sure you've heard and that we use with uh, patients and with, with families is it's like a game of whack-a-mole. You know? That's exactly what I was going to say, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's... You know, you hit the the mole. If anybody uh, was ever in the Midwest uh, carnival, you hit the mole, and another one pops up, and you hit that one, and another one pops up. Uh, we used to call that cross addiction. That you know, I I drink alcohol, and I give up the alcohol, and my doctor prescribed Librium, and now I'm dependent on Librium, and I have an occasional drink, or I have a cocaine problem, and I smoke weed to relax, and why can't I do that? Um, and, and as you uh, aptly pointed out, the behaviors, uh, certainly gambling is in the DSM, which DSM, by the way, is not my favorite book. I think they really do a disservice in the long run to the definition of the disease of addiction. I think the next version will probably be better. I think this version is a little better than the DSM-4, but you know, it, it, we're stuck with it. It's the sort of the Bible for making a diagnosis. But uh, for anybody who wants a what I think is a better diagnosis, I would refer them to asam.org, A-S-A-M.org, for the short definition of addiction, which is about a page long, and the long definition of addiction, which is about 10 to 12 pages, all referenced very heavily with, with studies that sort of substantiate what we're talking about today. Um, but, it, but really the, the ASAM definition and the definition that I, uh, subscribe to is that it's a brain disease related to, uh, motivation, memory related circuitry. That's, that's the essence of the disease, not the behaviors that we see that are manifestations of the disease, if that makes sense. That does make sense. Getting back to your question about behaviors, behaviors are all driven by that same reward system. Uh, so the behavior that we talked about to seek food is about nourishment to satisfy the glucose need of, of the cells of the brain. When we eat to excess, that reward system is distorted in some way. The, the drive for food is overvalued 
and uh, it becomes automatic and it becomes less about, I want this thing to eat as eat, eat more, continue to eat more. And one of the things I don't think we've yet talked about is one of the hallmarks of addiction is the loss of control. Give me a little and I want more. Give me more and I want even more. You know, there's never enough. Uh, and the desire for more is triggered by a little bit. So, you know, the typical eating behavior is I have one bite of the hot fudge sundae and the next thing I know I'm going to the donut store for uh, a dozen at, at midnight, Krispy Kremes at midnight. Um, and that's, <coughs> of course, one of the versions of an eating disorder, which is in some un uh, understanding a manifestation of uh, the brain dysfunction, very similar and parallel to uh, chemical addiction. Even more similar is a disease like gambling uh, and or a behavior like gambling. And gambling has been shown in really extensive studies to do just about the same thing as cocaine to the stimulation of release of dopamine. And dopamine, of course, is the neurotransmitter of well-being. That's kind of what we all want as much as we can whenever we get it. And it's the drive for dopamine that goes awry that's involved in addictive disorders. And it looks like it's awry, certainly with gambling. It gets a little more complex when we get to things like sex and spending and video games. Clearly, there's a dopamine effect in all of those. Uh, how uh, parallel or similar or, uh, you know, is the process exactly the same? I, I think not uh, in my clinical experience. And of course, we're challenged with the treatment of addiction. The appropriate treatment of addiction in a loss of control process is don't have any. You know, that's uh, abstinence. Uh, and the inability to abstain is one of the defining factors in the ACM definition. For food and for uh, sex and love and for um, spending, you know, acquiring things, you, it's really tough to define an, an abstaining line. So when we talk about treatment, uh, we can refer people to abstain from the, the, the type of behavior, you know, that compulsive eating, uh, recurrent eating, despite, uh, you know, perseverating thoughts around eating, but we can't, tell them not to eat, you know, and uh, the Weight Watchers, which is sort of a, an offshoot of Alcoholics Anonymous, has an abstinence uh, component to it where the members don't eat white flour or sugar. And it's a tough program to succeed at. So I guess what I would say is there are certain parallels and similarities between behavioral addictions and chemical addiction, uh, but it's not a, a quid pro quo equal, uh, I don't think it's well enough understood to say that it's exactly the same process. I can really appreciate that definition and having worked with some clients that have struggled with gambling addiction and doing quite a bit of research in it, recognizing that um, it's so severe and that folks with an addiction to gambling type behaviors have such a high suicide risk are at very high risk of being in abusive relationships that to me, it suddenly jumped out these pretty clear parallels between what was happening with a substance and what was happening with gambling. And I can see what you're saying about the relationship to these other um, 
physiological drives like sex, like eating, that we, we all need to do those things. We don't all need to gamble. We don't all need to, um, to play video games. It's once that, uh, that disease, if you will, is activated that suddenly things go awry. Yeah. It's it very complicated. I mean, gambling is interesting. The gambling addiction, as I'm sure you know, starts with the first uh, win. You know, I, I live in Las Vegas, so I'm no stranger to slot machines, although I don't play them ever because <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I, I learned a while back that that was not, I just don't like throwing money into a machine. But that said, the win, you know, the, the, the sound of the dinging and the cash that you acquire is the beginning of the process of addiction. Just like the first high for somebody who injects heroin or who takes their first drink and, you know, has a, a, a monumental experience is the beginning of the addictive process. So it's the drive towards the reward at first, which is dopamine. And then it becomes, as I said, uh, the drive away from the, from the negative uh, that, that sustains the addictive behavior despite the consequences. You bring up an, an important point, too, there that I want to ask about. So tell us a little bit about the addictiveness of different substances. You know, we hear this substance is particularly addictive or some people get addicted to this. And, and, and you know, all of this started, I'd say, with a really clear evaluation of nicotine, of first looking at this thing that had come out on the market and then all of a sudden everybody's doing it and they can't stop. What do you see? What are some of the research about the fundamental addictiveness of certain substances? Yeah. So I didn't mention nicotine under stimulants, but it, it needs to be there, of course. The, the addictive nature of the substance is uh, how well it works and how quickly it works. So the quicker it gets into the brain, the more likely to be addictive. So that means short acting, fast on drugs are more likely to be addicting than long-acting drugs. And the best example is Xanax, which comes on really quickly and leaves really quickly compared to Klonopin, which is very slow on and very slow off. Xanax is, is more addicting in, in, its, in its function. Uh, the uh, nicotine is a mild stimulant compared to cocaine. If you look at the amount of dopamine that surges when you inhale nicotine, but the key there is that you're inhaling it. So inhalation is six to eight seconds into the brain. So smoking a drug is a very is a much more addicting manner of ingesting a drug than uh, swallowing it or snorting it because it has to go through a bunch of different barriers and, and circuits. Um, so cocaine, <clears throat> if you use it intranasally, which is the, the sort of the old oldest fashioned way, snort it into the nose. It's a pretty slow on. Uh, process. If you smoke it, freebasing it or using crack cocaine, it's extraordinarily rapid. And cocaine itself is the, the effect, as I said, you know, it's the effect plus the on. The effect of cocaine is intense. I mean, if you look at a diagram of how much dopamine is released with a blast of cocaine, especially if, if it's smoked or injected, it's like a thousand times the stimulus for food and a hundred times the stimulus for sex. So, you know, the addictive nature of the drug cocaine is very high. The addictive nature of smoking or injecting a drug much higher than swallowing or snorting. Um, uh, you know, marijuana is, uh, I have to mention it again, because it is of grave concern to me 
because the potency, it's THC, tetraedrocannabinol is the component of the marijuana plant that's, that's psychoactive primarily. And the THC potency, which means, you know, the, the strength of the high of the reward is much higher now than it used to be. It used to be maybe three or 4% pure THC in what people got. Now it's 18 to 20%. Edibles even higher, so you know, juicy fruit gum and and uh, energy drinks that have marijuana in them, and the, now they have marijuana laced wine, and uh, you know, uh, very concerning uh, forms, much higher potency. And then there's a, a way to sort of distill using butane the the marijuana into uh, essentially a hash oil, uh, and that oil is as high as 80 to 90% pure. Uh, and that's smoked typically in vapes or uh, pens that are now available uh, as a, a vape product. And, uh, you know, th these are drugs that are being used in schools and uh, on the street and, you know, it, it, sometimes in treatment centers, you know, it's not uncommon for uh, a youngster to come in and, and try and get away with using while they're in treatment. Um, so the addictive nature of the current crop of what we get, uh, in, in, for marijuana is extremely high and it's smoked for the most part. So the, at least with the dabs or the wax, the onset is going to be extremely rapid and therefore highly addicting. How about other substances like methamphetamine or any of the painkillers? So methamphetamine, very, very high potency, similar in many ways to cocaine, uh, a different, uh, there's a difference in the high that really uh, mostly the addict can tell you about, the person who's injecting. They say, meth is it, cocaine sucks, or cocaine is it, and I don't like meth because it makes me feel bad. The difference, the main difference is methamphetamine lasts a whole lot longer than cocaine. But the onset of this very potent stimulus, methamphetamine, if you're snorting it, is going to be slower. If you're smoking it or injecting it, it's going to be very fast. So meth would be one of those that goes in the very high risk category, along with smoked cocaine. Uh, and uh, then we get to the opiates. And, and just to say, you know, marijuana, which is smoked, is also going to be in that, that high risk category. Alcohol has a intoxicating effect, but it's a whole lot milder if you look on the scale than uh, some of the other drugs we've been talking about. And it's typically ingested. So if you're swallowing alcohol, the addictive nature of that drug is in a lower category compared to smoking meth. Um, and then the other uh, category uh, that I haven't talked about yet is opioids, uh, starting with prescription opioids like codeine and hydrocodone and oxycodone and uh, morphine and, uh, I mean, methadone, but, you know, that sort of falls in a little bit different category. But the pills or the oral form of an opiate comes on slowly, so it is less addicting. The, the problem is if, if it's dissolved and smoked or... Uh, injected, which it can be in any of the pill forms can be crushed up and injected, or certainly heroin is injectable, uh, very fast on heroin. You know, if you look at the potency scale, heroin's the most potent opioid, 
oxycodone is extraordinarily potent as well. So if you are injecting or smoking oxycodone, which is what was in Oxycontin, the addictive nature of that's very high. We have spent a lot of time in society, obviously, talking more recently about opiates uh, because of the epidemic and how many deaths we've seen related to these substances and trying to respond to this, you know, things being overprescribed. And you and I have talked about that separately. Tell me a little bit also just about the addictiveness of hallucinogens. That's something that I've seen in my practice. Mm. And I think some of our listeners would like to hear that when we still have things out there that people are using that um, are kind of an afterthought, that we talk about things like meth, cocaine, mm-hmm. opiates, marijuana, but there's this other whole class of drugs that we don't spend that much time talking about. So if you look at the class of hallucinogens, so we're looking at uh, chemical uh, or, uh, I'm sorry, plant products like mushrooms, uh, which are hallucinogenic, psilocybin, and a variety of, of cogeners and uh, LSD, which is a synthetic product, um, they really work differently. I mean, addiction per se to uh, hallucinogens is quite uncommon, not impossible, uh, but quite uncommon. So what I've seen clinically is that hallucinogens usually are part of the picture, but usually it's an it, it like, yeah, I, I tripped once or twice, didn't like it, didn't agree with me, because it's so different uh, experientially than most of the drugs that we're talking about that really activate the reward system. Uh, I don't see primary addiction to, to hallucinogens as a as a key phenomenon. I, have you seen it as the, the drug of choice uh, in your patients, or is it more, it just kind of comes along with? It comes along with thinking, I have some interesting cases and have had some recently that had exactly what you were talking about with THC, that we had people that otherwise had no symptoms of any kind of schizophrenia, no family history of psychotic disorders, and they start using marijuana heavily. And then what I've seen is kind of layered on experimentation with hallucinogens. And the next thing you know, they're hospitalized for a week or two because of a really severe psychotic episode. That's what I've seen. Uh, And the protracted psychosis is more often than not marijuana these days. Um, you know, it's it's uncommon in my clinical experience, uh, and I, you know, I don't know the current literature on hallucinogens, but I've, as you said, it's not something that people are studying very uh, avidly. Uh, but it, for for all of it, the uh, the long term nature of inducing psychosis was infrequent compared to what we're seeing with this crop of marijuana, uh, especially in under twenty five year olds. You know, the the brain. The structure of the frontal lobe is still developing up until 25, and there's a whole bunch of data that's being accumulated that shows damage to those brains, uh, and some of it probably resulting in psychosis, other resulting in uh, IQ drops and uh, cognitive problems and memory problems and school performance problems. One of my other questions, now that we've talked a little bit about some of the different drug classifications and what we see in terms of the high and the addictiveness... How do you conceptualize recovery? So now we've talked about the disease. What does recovery look like? Yeah. Well, uh, as I mentioned right at the onset of the show, recovery has to start with elimination of the drug. Uh, And we probably should put a 
a bullet point there or an asterisk about opiates and uh, medication-assisted treatments because that might be an exception. Uh, if we have time, maybe we'll get there. But you know, for the traditional uh, addiction disease, for alcohol, for stimulants, for uh, sedatives, for marijuana, if you ingest the drug, the brain remains disorganized and remains driven by the drug and not by the, the natural drive system restored to itself. So elimination of the drug is the first step in recovery, but it's only the first of many steps. I mean, you know, the, the AA program and all the other mutual health programs based in AA are 12-step programs. Uh, and I don't know where exactly that comes from, but it really is you know, there's a progressive nature of, uh, you know, recovery based in acknowledging. I mean, really, the first step in AA and NA and, and other 12-step programs is I'm powerless over alcohol and my life's unmanageable. That is understanding. This is a brain disease. You know, powerless means I cannot use willpower. I cannot use self-driven uh, power because those functions come from the frontal lobe the, the uh, desire to use and the craving that comes up in people who aren't using, even though they're abstinent, is part of the midbrain dysfunction. Uh, and then most of the process of recovery is restoring sort of a normalcy in function. You know, so if you think back to that whole litany of uh, consequences and in conjunction with that reasons for using, so uh, you know, I mentioned anxiety, anger, fear, depression, relationship problems, uh, work stressors, uh, financial uh, issues, and all of those physical problems, some of them will resolve by, by eliminating the substance. You know, alcohol eliminated from the body causes a restoration in many cases of, of normal function or at least stabilizes the dysfunction. So, you know, you can have cirrhosis of the liver stop drinking and the cirrhosis remains stable and the, you know, people get on with their life pretty close to normal. Uh, it's, it's by continued use that they continue to damage the body. But the, the real work of recovery, both on a personal level and from a level of what a professional can do with somebody with addiction is dealing with life on life's terms, if you will. And, and that would involve relationships and emotional distress, uh, faulty thinking, you know, cognitive distortions in the terms of CBT. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of models of treatment that can be offered to people who have addictive disorders uh, that relate to helping people with thinking, helping people with distress, helping people with motivation, uh, you know, the A step in the 12 step programs is one that I think is really important in clinical therapy, which is taking responsibility, making amends to the best of one's ability and, and moving on. And then, you know, one of the keys in the recovery process is diffusing that, that uh, self-centeredness, you know, that it's all about me and recreating or for some creating for the first time a sense of community and a sense of uh, interaction with others and um, really working towards being of service to others. Being helpful uh, is the 12th step and, you know, probably 
the most valuable thing that anybody with a disease of addiction can do is get past their own issues and be of service to somebody else. And, and that's just as simply as you know, making a phone call or driving somebody to a meeting or going out for coffee and listening instead of just dumping. Uh, the, the bottom line is this is, you know, we talk about recovery-oriented systems of care and recovery capital, the, the movement that's really sort of afoot, which is all about changing just about everything. And really every area of life needs to be assessed and usually in somebody who has addictive disease has to be reorganized to, to look outward instead of inward and to, to really have some resources for personal uh, self-efficacy, um, but also involvement with others and, and being of service. That's a real quick summary of recovery. I appreciate that. And it's interesting too, because when we're looking at other disorders, we know that involvement in larger purposes, whether that's working in a nonprofit or donating time, volunteering, donating resources, whatever that is, can help people feel better and make us feel more connected. And um, it's interesting kind of the the relationship between feeling like we're part of something, feeling connected, I mean, the same research basically that came out of Rat Park. When we have others around us and we feel like we're part of something, then we don't feel as driven to do these self-destructive behaviors, whether that's addictive or it's not getting out of bed or whatever it is that is making us not be as satisfied with our lives. Or, or eating too much if you're a diabetic, uh, you know, uh, or it's, it's so, you know, I mean, I, I, I might refer to that as spiritual, even though it's, you know, non-religious, but it is, it is something related to a bigger purpose. And I, I totally agree that that I won't say it has to be a part of recovery, but certainly optimal recovery would embrace uh, uh, that that higher purpose, uh, however it's acquired. And, you know, the, the setup in the 12 step programs is that it's it's built in. You know, when you get to the 12 step, the essence is I'm, I'm going to give back and I'm going to help others the way I was helped uh, through, through my early part of recovery. And, you know, the other thing to point out is that people coming into recovery early are so shame-based and so guilty for all the things they've done. You know, one of the reasons uh, yelling at somebody who has addiction is so ineffective is because they're yelling at themselves all the time. I mean, there there's no, uh, except maybe an antisocial personality disorder in conjunction with addiction, but most people who have addiction are miserable. You know, it's not like they're out there having a good time. They, they, their ambivalence is present. You know, they want to get better. They don't want to keep doing these terrible things. Uh, you know, assuming they have some moral compass, they're going against their morality. So the earliest part of recovery is hooking up with other people, seeing other people similar to me, but also seeing other people similar to me getting well and, and sort of identifying with, oh, you know, they have something I want and I can get that. And once I get a little bit of that, then I have something to give to somebody else. Again, it comes up that idea of connection, social and spiritual coming, coming in. Yes. Yes. One of the other things that I've been thinking about, and we don't have a ton of time to talk about it today, but I'd, I'd love to open it up. What about the relapse rate? 
one thing that I hear from families and working with addictive disorders is, you know, basically if they got better, then they wouldn't have relapsed. And I'd love to hear how you approach that and explain that in the context of the disease model. Yeah, I, uh, I actually just got a call from a former client uh, who wants to talk about that. The client hasn't relapsed, but he wants to know what to expect. She's two, two years out of treatment, uh, not using, having a better life but he wants more information about what to expect. You know, let's start with relapse. Uh, relapse is a symptom of the disease of addiction, just like it is the symptom of a disease of diabetes. If you have an exacerbation of, or you get an infection, or you uh, overeat, or you run down, you might have an exacerbation of your diabetes. If you disconnect from the things that are effective in your recovery, you would be more likely to be subject to using in response to craving. Craving is, as I mentioned, a symptom of the midbrain disease of addiction. And craving is not, I mean, it, it might come on just because it's Tuesday, but it also comes on because of stress, anxiety, fear, depression. So theoretically, adequately addressing those issues ongoingly is the effective treatment and prevention of relapse. But we know that people relapse. When I, I ask uh, groups of particularly families, is relapse part of recovery? Uh, and the answer is no, it's not. Relapse is not a part of recovery. Relapse is a, a, is a manifestation of the disease, but relapse is truly stepping away from recovery. Recovery, uh, as, you, as all of us know, is, a, is only a day at a time. You know, there's no guarantees for a long-term anything. But, and, and you know, in, in response to your question about data, we just don't have data about relapse rates. You know, I think good treatment provides long-term abstinence opportunities for all of their clients and perhaps a good running start for as many as 50 to 70% of those clients. How many people sustain that benefit really relies on what plans are made for them on an ongoing basis. Because relapse, of course, can happen in six months, a year, two years, 10 years. Uh, so, and, and the research is, is flawed in that area. We, we just, you know, we're unable to find people and we're unable to track them adequately. So we just don't know how well we're doing. I think that's one of the hard parts of working in this industry is the, the realities of relapse and also not being able to have an, a longitudinal perspective on treatment gains. And when I've looked at the research between the relapse rate, say, of um, addiction to opiates versus the relapse rate of diabetes or heart disease, or basically this chronic illness that's being managed and then whatever's being done to manage it is no longer effective. So there's this bloom again of symptomatology. I've seen these, yes. this correlation that I think is important to note in recognizing that something that may have been effective for a certain time, the body changes, life changes, and maybe we need to go back to the drawing board to come up with a treatment plan that now is appropriate and maybe more effective since the factors have been altered. Yeah. I just, I just before we end, I, I want to point out that we've got some really good data on physicians in recovery. So these are doctors who are you know highly motivated uh, usually socioeconomically benefited, uh, who are in a very tight monitoring program. And the abstinent rates, including for opiates, is as high as 90% at seven years. So we can do that. And the, the key components of that recovery is really maintenance and uh, accountability. Uh, 
so you know there's 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 food to be uh, learned uh, there's there's information to be learned from that population and from the drug court population but that said the 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 collection of data the availability of data is really uh, pitiful and i don't know how we're going to get past that maybe that's a another topic for a podcast and we have more information on it and can speak more from an educated physician um, well, thank you, Mel. We really appreciate your time in, in what you brought to the table today, talking about the disease model addiction, as well as some of the drug classifications, how that looks when we're looking at it as a disease and, and what symptoms we see, but then also what is recovery and how do we work toward that and maintain it. I think all of that's been very helpful. Um, Dr. Pohl, how do our listeners learn more about you, about your background, and also other resources if they have further reading that they'd like to do on the on these topics? Sure. Uh, well, the website here is lasvegasrecovery.com. It has a lot of information about both me and links to a, a variety of areas and some, uh, some things that I've written. Uh, I have a number of books. Most of them are focused on chronic pain. Uh, the Pain Antidote and A Day Without Pain, uh, and then a, a workbook called Pain Recovery, which is what we use here for our patients with pain. Um, there are a couple of other book titles. One is uh, by Dr. Paul Early, E-A-R-L-E-Y, Recovery Mind. He has a, a great, probably the best explanation I've ever seen of just what we've been talking about and has a, a wonderful model of, of a recovery system. Um, and then there's the recovery handbook by Dr. Al Mooney, M-O-O-N-E-Y, which also defines addiction uh, in really good terms. So uh, those are some good resources. Thank you, Dr. Pohl. We really appreciate your time today. And uh, we'll certainly look at those resources. I think this has been enormously helpful, I know, for me and for my listeners. So thank you again. Great. Thank you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.